We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to the Money Matters podcast. I'm Laura Suter and with me is Danny Hewson. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone. Welcome if you're new to our pod, which is all about helping women get comfortable with their finances. We talk about everything here, the good, the bad, and yes, the uncomfortable. And this is one week where the topic is a really difficult one, but also really important. So this week, we're going to be talking about economic abuse. And some of you listening might be scratching your head a bit and wondering what that means. And others will unfortunately know all too well what it is because you've either experienced it yourself or you have friends or family who've suffered. And we do know that it's not just something that happens to women, but rather like domestic abuse, which does tend to go hand in hand with economic abuse women do tend to be the most vulnerable. And we've got some research coming out in the autumn looking at some of the points in women's lives where their finances can go off track, uh, those wobbly bits. And those are the bits that also tend to be the points where women can become victims of economic abuse. We'll tell you more about that research in a few podcast time. But do make sure that you sign up to our newsletter via our website and you'll get details of when you can read about that research And we also have a very special celebrity guest who's going to be joining us to talk about her own financial wobbly bits. We'll have plenty more about that on our socials. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter. Do we still call it Twitter or do we have to call it X? Well, whatever. We're also there and on Facebook. But back to today. And in a moment, we're going to play the interview that I did with Lauren Garrett from the charity Surviving Economic Abuse, which is an absolute eye-opener and full of really helpful advice. And one of the things that she says that really stood out is that customer service staff at financial institutions, so kind of banks and building societies, are often the first people that victims talk to about the abuse and that new consumer duty regulations that have been brought in by the Financial Conduct Authority should push financial institutions to do even more and be more innovative when it comes to helping customers who are dealing with economic abuse. So before we hear from Lauren, we thought it was a really good idea to find out about consumer duty. So we have pulled in the wonderful Charlene Young from the team at AJ Bell, who has been working on the new regulations to explain. Hi, Charlene. So what briefly, what is consumer duty? Hi. So, yeah, the consumer duty has come from our regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority or FCA. So it's a new rule that tells finance companies to really put the customer at the heart of everything they do and give them what they need to help people achieve their financial and investing goals. So it's all about increasing consumer protection. And almost every company will tell you that they do put the customer first, but the new duty is really about evidencing how they do that and looking at the experience customers get when they're dealing with companies. Um, So the duty covers every touch point a financial firm has with all of its customers, but it's also making sure they are looking after people in a vulnerable position. Um, There's kind of four parts to it that I like to summarize. So firstly, we've checked that our products and services offer fair value. 
So that doesn't mean they have to be the very cheapest or that a higher price is necessarily bad, but it's making sure that customers are paying a fair price for the features they are getting and think they're getting. And um, secondly, what we offer is doing exactly on what it says on the tin. So like the run seal test, if you like. Um, thirdly, we need to check that we're giving customers the right information and the right support at the right time to make uh, to help them make good decisions throughout their investing journey. And then finally, the fourth one is that this information um, and crucially this support that we give them is understandable and accessible to them. So this applies across all financial firms. So from your bank account to your credit card provider to your insurance provider. So what kind of differences might you or I or the average person on the street maybe notice after this consumer duty comes into place? Yeah, so it does cover sort of every firm with a finance aspect. So a couple of examples. Um, Customers should find that it's easier to cancel or switch between providers and importantly that existing customers are as well supported as new ones or potential new ones, um, which has often been a a source of imbalance. Um, AJ Bell, for example, lets customers transfer away at no cost, but that's not the case for every investment company. Um, Kind of secondly, communication. So those interactions that you have with finance firms, whether that's an email, a phone call, um, some information on a website should be clearer and more helpful. And again, that covers everything from terms and conditions, which traditionally are a snooze fest that we all scroll through, um, but contain really important information to other helpful information and reminders that you get from firms. Um, If you're taking out a new product or service online, for example, you might start to see little breaks or chances to pause in the process. Um, This will be there to ensure that customers really understand what they're buying um, and the potential benefits as well as the potential risk. Um, the hope with all of this is that customers will be far better equipped to achieve their kind of personal financial goals. Um, another example, certainly one that you might see at investment firms, is is from talking to customers that they can see are holding large, amount, large amounts of cash in accounts that are built for long-term investing, like a pension, for instance. That might be a conscious decision, and there could be a very good reason for it, but it's all about making sure customers are aware of the implications of that. Thanks, Charlene. So, okay, back to the subject at hand for today's podcast. Let's hear from Lauren about exactly what economic abuse looks like. Lauren, the first question I think that a lot of people might not know is what exactly is economic abuse? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of people actually confuse economic abuse for financial abuse, um, or that's perhaps a more familiar um, term. Uh, So economic abuse is a form of domestic abuse. um, And it often occurs um, in the context of intimate partner violence um, and can involve the control of a partner or ex-partner's money and finances, but also the things that money can buy. Um, So economic abuse has actually been legally um, defined and recognised within the Domestic Abuse Act 2021. And so at sea, we use the term economic abuse as opposed to financial abuse because we recognise that it um, includes a broader range of of perpetrator abuser tactics. So financial abuse might be controlling somebody's money, whereas economic abuse is controlling the things that money can buy. So things like use of um, a car, 
transportation to get places, to get to work, to drop the kids to school, um, the food in the fridge, the heating, um, all of those sorts of things, your employment, um, let's say, and your prospects of being able to progress um, at work and promotions. Um, if you're stopped from, from doing that or your um, productivity or performance at work is impacted uh, by an abuser or a perpetrator, that could be seen as a form of economic abuse. Um, so that's why we talk about economic abuse as opposed to financial abuse. There will be people listening to this that have either experienced economic abuse or they've got friends or family that have experienced economic abuse. There'll be others, as I say, coming completely cold to this. How prolific is it? So it's more prolific than you would think. Um, There was some research conducted at the beginning of this year by the Aviva Foundation, um, and they actually found that two in five adults in the UK have experienced a form of economic abuse. Um, And actually, just this morning, the FCA published their Financial Lives um, survey, and in that, they have um, highlighted economic abuse for the the first time um, as a category of vulnerability. And they found that 2.2 million adults um, in the UK have experienced a form of economic abuse. Um, And what was interesting is the results um, from that survey suggest that victims are more likely to be female, um, aged between 18 to uh, 54, to be in poor health, um, to have a low income, or perhaps be over-indebted. So they're sort of some of the risk factors um, around economic abuse um, and we know from our research um, at C, so at Surviving Economic Abuse, this charity that I work for, um, that 95% of cases of domestic abuse involve a form of economic abuse. And you, you said there that um, obviously the uh, Financial Life Survey had highlighted the fact that women are the ones who are predominantly impacted by this. You've done a lot of research on this. Are there sort of particular moments in in a woman's life where she becomes more vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting, actually, because the FCA um, Financial Life Survey that that was published this morning that I just mentioned highlights that uh, 5% of women and 3% of men experience um, or report experiencing a form of financial or economic abuse in the past five years. But prior to that, our understanding is that men and women tend to experience economic abuse equally, um, but the way in which they experience it really differs. Um, So women are more likely to experience economic abuse alongside other forms of abuse, so psychological, emotional, um, physical, sexual abuse, Um, and it's more likely to happen as part of a course of coercive and controlling behaviour over a long period of time. Whereas men are more likely to experience economic abuse as a one-off event um, and tend to recover financially um, within 12 months. Now we're speaking in general terms because of course there will be men who experience this in the same way that women do. Um, But that then means that the way in which the uh, perpetrator tactics play out, what that looks like, and the key stages um, when a woman might experience economic abuse differs. Um, So for instance, um, a woman might be at risk during pregnancy um, or when she becomes a a mother for the first time. Um, 
there are statistics around when um, a couple move in together for the first time and perhaps take out a mortgage, they're more likely to experience economic abuse during that time. Um, and obviously, um, work and career changes. Um, so if they're in a controlling um, relationship, um, that can be impacted if they go for a promotion and the partner isn't happy with that and might try and sabotage that. So there are a number of stages throughout somebody's life. And of course, elderly people experience economic abuse too, um, which is it's worth highlighting. It's very prevalent um, for elderly people. Um, interestingly, elderly people tend to not recognize that it's happening. Um, so if you ask them directly, they say, oh, you know, no, I just give them a bit of money to go and get my shopping um, and things like that. I might not actually realize that abuse is, is happening under the surface. So, um, yeah. We know that businesses like banks can play a huge part in dealing with economic abuse because sometimes, for example, if a woman is getting child support, she's got divorced, she's no longer experiencing physical abuse, she can still be threatened because those payments can come with little messages attached, which might look completely innocuous, but actually can be terrifying to a woman in question. So what can banks do? What have they done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, banks have a, a huge role to play, um, both in terms of identifying signs of economic abuse when it's happening um, and the responses that they give to offer support. Um, and prevent it. So um, we know from our research that victim survivors are more likely to disclose to a bank or a building society that they're experiencing a form of domestic and economic abuse um, than they are to a frontline service, um, such as the police um, or a, a women's service who offer support. And I think they're you know, always, um, it's really stark for me when thinking about the impact that financial services can have because that's the first point of call that's where survivors are going to say i need help and i need support and um, and it shows the unrivaled position that financial services then have um, in responding of course if that response isn't positive that can impact the survivor then contacting a number of other services um, and there are rules guidance and regulation and um, that financial services um have to respond to and adhere to, which protects people in vulnerable positions, including survivors of domestic abuse and economic abuse. And that's not just in terms of the support that's offered. It's also thinking about when products and services might inadvertently facilitate abuse. So for instance, you mentioned about payment references, um, and this is where a perpetrator might be making a court mandated payment for child maintenance. So they have to make that payment. It can't just be blocked. Um, and when they make that payment, they change the reference to something that is abusive. Um, so that might be an abusive word or it might be something that is really intimate and personal to that individual and the abuse that they experienced. Um, so, for example, um, making a reference to a trip or a holiday um, that, that they went on together, but actually during that trip, the individual was isolated, they experienced physical abuse. And so that's that's a threatening message to receive via their bank, but not something that an outsider would instantly recognize as being abusive. 
Um, and we've seen some great things happening in that space. Um, I don't know if you, you've seen or any of your listeners uh, saw uh, Starling Bank made um, an announcement that they have implemented a feature on their app where survivors can hide the reference. Um, so the payment will still be made, um, which is great, but it actually empowers the individual to just click a button on their phone and they can hide it, it blurs it completely. That means they don't have to call their bank and disclose. They don't have to relive it. They don't have to look at it. They don't have to look at the name. It completely disappears. And, you know, things like that are really great. And we've seen um, a lot of firms really think innovatively about how they can support survivors, um, as well as awareness campaigns, which we know is so important so that people can actually recognize that this is happening and give it a name. And that validates the survivor experience. Um, HSBC did um, a big campaign uh, towards the, the end of last year and it was run actually during the World Cup, uh, which was great, you know, to raise awareness. Uh, we were thrilled at sea because some of our stats we use in that campaign and we had so many survivors reaching out to us, to, you know, say how incredible this was that a major high street bank um, was focusing their attention on this really important issue. Because I think people listening to this will be really surprised when you say that often it is financial institutions like banks that are the first people to learn about this economic abuse. I mean, that is a huge amount of pressure to put on people in those financial institutions that are dealing with customers on a one-to-one -one basis. I know that the FCA have just introduced new consumer duty regulations. What kind of changes do you think those are going to bring? Yeah, so we really welcome the consumer duty at surviving economic abuse. Um, and we think it offers firms an amazing opportunity to look at the way they're currently um, responding to economic abuse and transform the way that they're responding. Um, and, and that runs right from the support that they offer a customer when they might call and disclose through to the services that they currently have on the market and whether or not they are inadvertently um, allowing abusers to control individuals. So for instance, um, having a named cardholder on a credit card. So you can't have a joint credit card. Um, it's in one person's name, the survivor's name, but you could add a joint cardholder. And um, that means that the survivor is responsible um, for all of the transactions on that card, despite somebody else having a card that they can use and abuse. And so perhaps firms want to think about whether or not that's still relevant in this day and age. You know, credit cards were introduced with named cardholders way back when women weren't allowed to take out credit um, in their own name or had to have um, a male guarantor, for instance, to become a party to a mortgage. Times have moved on, and so the industry needs to do the same. Um, and so we see the consumer duty as being a um, a really good opportunity for firms to take a look um, at what they're currently doing um, and to, in, to enhance that. Um, and let's see, we actually uh, published a briefing paper at the beginning of this year, um, which really breaks down what the consumer duty is um, and what that means in terms of survivors and we did that in partnership with the law firm Simmons and Simmons um, and you know I've given the example of, um, of credit cards and how firms might might look at those but also thinking about how accessible it is um, for customers to obtain credit online where there's no human interaction um, you know you won't know, won't know if somebody else is doing that fraudulently or has all of the details um, of their partner and so perhaps thinking about added extra security questions 
or maybe some positive friction during um, those application processes, which might give individuals an opportunity to come forward um, and, and disclose, or for signs to be spotted. Um, and also things like ensuring that firms aren't gaining financially when economic abuse is happening. Um, and that's slightly more tricky, but if a firm is aware that an individual has experienced economic abuse and that's why they're in their overdraft, perhaps they think about not charging interest and charges um, on that overdraft or they might think about putting a freeze um, on that. Or perhaps um, in certain circumstances, they might consider writing off a debt um, and restoring an individual's credit file to enable them to then move forward with their lives. Lives are a tricky thing and we were speaking about those wobbly bits where people can find themselves falling victim. You know, maybe they're moving into a house, sharing a mortgage for the first time. Maybe they're pregnant, as you say. Maybe they're getting divorced. All of those moments, those wobbly moments in in a woman's life and a man's life as well can be hugely significant. Do you think that maybe if there was more focus on financial education in schools that people would potentially be more aware of these sort of points where they're vulnerable and and know what to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There definitely needs to be more financial education in schools for young people um, so that they can also identify the signs and protect themselves, Um, but know how these products work and what the implications are. So, you know, not making um, a repayment for a loan, let's say, or run a credit card and that impacting your credit file and that's staying there for six years. Um, when a young person is then trying to get their first mortgage or to perhaps buy a car on finance, they're unable to do that and not really understanding the implications of that. So, you know, that that's so important. Um, and there was a study um, in America that looked at young people and their experience of economic abuse, so economic control, exploitation and sabotage. And what was really interesting is that less than half of the people who were interviewed said that they'd experienced a form of economic abuse or control. But yet, when they were asked about whether or not their um, attendance at school had been interfered by their boyfriend, uh, partner, girlfriend, um, 68% of them said, yes, <laughs> yes, it had. Um, and when they were asked if their partner interfered with them going to work or made them quit their job, again, another 67% said yes. Um and had they experienced financial control? So when they were asked that explicitly and given examples of what that meant, 65% said that they had. So that just goes to show that these tactics are happening um, in young relationships, but individuals don't recognize it. So more education in schools will really have um, an impact on protecting um, young people so that they can identify when this is happening right at the outset and and reach out for support and put steps in place and to protect themselves. Look, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you talking about such an important issue. Lauren Garrett from the charity Surviving Economic Abuse There. And if any of that resonated with you, if you're suffering from economic abuse or know someone who is, you can find loads of really helpful resources on the Surviving Economic Abuse website. 
it can be really difficult and yes, really brave to take this step. But remember, banks and building societies do have a responsibility. They have a duty to you to respond in a positive way to really support you. And Lauren said that in some cases, your bank can support you financially if you're looking to flee your situation and that your employer might also have similar initiatives in place and Lawrence Charity also work in partnership with a financial support line who can help you if you're in debt because of your situation and you can also connect with the charity via social media so if you just search for surviving economic abuse on Instagram threads Twitter Facebook and LinkedIn you can find many more resources there And after discussing such a sensitive and thought-provoking subject, I I really wasn't sure if it would feel right to ask Lauren for a financial confession. But she said she loved this bit of our podcast because it really humanises our guests and shows that everyone makes mistakes. So here we go. Here is Lauren's financial confession. I love that you asked this question. (laughs) it came to me very, very quickly. Me um, working in financial services for my whole career <laughs> and now working for C, you'd think that I'd be quite good um, with money. However, um, when I was 29, I decided that I would live quite recklessly um, and I set myself at 30 physical challenges. So running marathons, cycling across the country, climbing mountains, um, and I wanted to achieve these 30 physical challenges uh, by my 30th birthday. Um, but that wasn't cheap. <laughs> so I decided to draw down on all of my savings um, to have a really wild and reckless year. And it was so much fun and I do not regret it. However, um, I do regret not being better um, with my finances throughout my, my 20s um, and saving more because actually, then when I did turn 30 and thought I really need to um, to put all of that money back and start saving again. You know, a small a small amount of money put aside every month really does make a huge difference. Um, and three years later, well, I mean, we had the pandemic in the, in the middle of that, but actually by putting money aside consistently every month, I was in a position to be able to take out um, a mortgage, my, my first home um, for the first time, which, you know, felt like a really big achievement, but I, I wish I'd been better in my 20s. So... <laughs> That's my financial confession. (laughs) A fun one, I guess. (laughs) A fun one. And you did all 30? You achieved 30 physical challenges? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I recommend it. You only live once, as they say. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much. So it's quite similar to last week's confession, and it's all around where you draw the line on kind of treating yourself versus saving. Where do you spend your money on things that you really want to do versus kind of saving for the future? And I think that's a struggle that everyone faces, even if it's in the day to day of do I buy like a really nice lunch today or do I just make a really boring sandwich at home? And I think everyone struggles with this day to day and long term. (laughs) I definitely think I'm more in the camp of, yeah, I'm going to buy a really nice lunch. I just don't fancy a sandwich, but that obviously gets quite difficult when you've got kids and they need stuff as well. (laughs) 
That is it for this week's episode, but don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do leave us a comment or get in touch with us on social media. We're on all the usual platforms. Just search for AJ Bell Money Matters. You can also email us at moneymatters at ajbell.co.uk and you can subscribe to our newsletter so we can keep you up to date with all of the exciting things that we've got coming up. And I am really looking forward to the next podcast episode because you're going to be talking about TikTok money trends and whether any of them are actually useful with financial blogger Ellie Austin Williams from This Girl Talks Money. It's going to be a fascinating chat. So do look out for that in a couple of weeks time. And until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.